This season of Black and White is brought to you by Flatiron Wealth Management. Led by my good friend Andrew Shepard, Flatiron Wealth Management is an independent wealth management firm that is committed to building generational wealth for their clients. By constantly optimizing and diversifying its investment strategies, Flatiron helps you influence the economic factors that you can and to prepare for the ones you can't. Visit flatironwealth.com for more information. Link in the podcast description. Welcome back to Black and White, a rallying place where we come together to learn and hold everyone gently to account. A podcast for the ally in all of us. I'm your host, Stephen Dorsey. My guest today is Senator Don Oliver, the first black man to be appointed to the Canadian Senate in 1990 and only the second black person to be appointed to the chamber. Senator Anne Claire Coles was the first, having been the first black person appointed in 1984. Senator Oliver was appointed by former Prime Minister Brian Mulroney. He served in the Senate until 2013 after 22 years of service. During his tenure, he was an outspoken social activist against racism, and one of his crowning achievements was his seminal work on systemic barriers to the advancements of minorities in both the public and private sectors in Canada, championing a 2004 conference board study on employment equity in the workplace that was used as a model, making the case for diversity in the workplace. In 2008, Senator Oliver led a motion to make all of Canada's parliament officially recognize Black History Month, which passed in 2008. Imagine that. A moment he describes as a great joy. We'll touch on those and discuss Senator Oliver's amazing and interesting life story, rooted in love of family, strength of character, perseverance, resilience, and achievement. It's an honor to have him as my guest today for our final episode of season one of Black and White. Welcome to Black and White, Senator Oliver. Thanks for having me. Thanks for accepting the invitation uh, and making the time for us. Now, I want to just touch base because we talked just before the holidays, our first meeting. You just published your autobiography when we spoke, A Matter of Equality, The Life's Work of Donald Oliver detailing the many facets of your personal and professional life with an added focus on why Canadians should work to root out systemic racism that has stalled the growth of Canada's black citizens. One of my favorite new books, and I believe a must-read for all Canadians. You've been very busy promoting the book, which has been very well received. How are you feeling about kind of seeing your story in print and talking about it to people you know, people you're meeting for the first time, uh, and congratulations on the publishing. Well, thanks for the congratulations and and thanks to you as well for your wonderful book, you know, and I hope it's going well. I'm amazed at the number of people whom I've never met who've read the book and written to me about it from all across Canada and some in the States and some in the West Indies. So it's, it's really quite amazing. And, and uh, you know, sometimes they just write a paragraph or two, but say how much the book moves them. And I'll tell you, it moves me inside as well to hear that. But uh, look, the book's been nominated for a couple of book awards and uh, the province of Nova Scotia has made a decision that it's going to be put in every single library in the province and they're going to recommend that every school have it and the province is going to buy some books for every library and uh, 
the uh, other great things are happening across Canada. So I'm, I'm pleased with the way the book is going. That's so many achievements. How does that feel to, you know, it's in a way it's, it's your life's work condensed in, in a book that's, you know, going to be on a shelf and people are going to pick it up for generations and read it. How does that make you feel? Um, <laughs> it makes me feel very humble, actually. But, you know, my wife and I have been looking through some old photographs as we're downsizing and we've come across photographs from other things in my life that were not referred to in the book. And I said, oh, dear, why didn't I mention that? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Part two, you know, you mentioned my book, Black and White, and that came out, uh, I think, just about a month after in February of this year. One of my favorite things is that you were so generous and honored me with an endorsement of my book, which actually features on the back cover. And I cherish that. And our good friends, of course, at Nimbus Publishing in Halifax. And I just wanted to say thank you again for that. I'm very grateful. I look at what you wrote and it continues to humble me. So thank you. Thank you. Senator, it's going to be impossible to really go through your entire life and cover all your accomplishments. You've been a lawyer, a diplomat, a community activist, a Canadian senator, a farmer, a <laughs> Epicurean, and of course, a well-deserved recipient of the Order of Canada in 2020. And for those outside of Canada, this is the highest honor that Canadians can be bestowed by the Canadian government. And the first thing I want to touch on is, because I know we, we touched on this a little bit um, when we had our brief conversation last year, but in my book, I have a chapter called Canada's Mythology on Race. And in that chapter, I burst the bubble, if you will, of our brand perception of multiculturalism and really kind of go back in history to say, you know, uh, we had things were just as bad as the United States here. We had slavery, we had discrimination, we had segregation. And so many people have told me like, Stephen, I didn't know anything about this, right? <laughs> it's like, I, I had no idea about this, but your family has a, a rich history, your ancestors who came to this country. So maybe we can start at the beginning and tell me a little bit about your family, where they came from, why they came to Canada and how they initially made their way uh, with a lot of challenges around them, and especially around racism. Well, first of all, I am a fifth-generation Canadian, and most of the people I would interface with in Toronto uh, when I was working uh, would not have been here for two generations, let alone five. On my father's side, Moses Oliver and his wife worked on plantations in Maryland, and tobacco plantations. And Moses said, look, I would like to find a way out of here and I would like to go to a place called Canada because there might be an opportunity for us there to get our children educated and then we might have a few more freedoms than we have here. And so Moses was a visionary and uh, my great-grandfather and he came to Canada and started that side of the, the Oliver family. On my mother's side, uh, my my grandfather was born nine years after the abolition of slavery, or he would have been born into slavery in Virginia. He was able to get an education because he was free, and uh, he was sent to Washington to a finishing school for bright young black people at the time. And there he met a missionary from Nova Scotia. And she took a liking to him, and she said, look, you're a bright young guy. Why don't you come to a university in Nova Scotia and take the study theology? And he said to her, after she spoke a bit more about the university, he slowly said to her, would your university accept a colored man like me? 
And she said, I don't know. Maybe there are barriers, so I will write and find out. She wrote, there were no barriers because a black man had graduated uh, in, uh, in, in 1893 from Acadia. And, uh, and anyway, my grandfather, Reverend Dr. White, came to Canada and graduated in 1903 from Acadia University in Nova Scotia. And he went on to do several great things in the world. He was the only black non-commissioned captain in the British Empire in the First World War. And it was he who was the first church in Canada to have church services broadcast all over the country and into the Western United States. And, uh, wow. And uh, he, he was also uh, the person who worked with the construction battalion in the war because blacks were not allowed to serve with whites in the war, so they yeah. had their own The battalion. black battalion, as it was referred and to. My grandfather was the captain to that battalion as well. My grandfather, Dr. White, had 13 children. A lot of them were musical, and the most famous one was Portia White who uh, became a contralto who sang in the greatest concert halls in the world, South America, all through Europe. And she had this beautiful contralto voice, very, very famous. She'd sung for Queen Elizabeth over in PEI and done many other great performances around the world. And she came to our little home in Wolfville, Nova Scotia, to visit my mother, who herself was a very accomplished pianist. Portia came to the house. And she and my mother put on a small concert for the president of the university, the dean of theology, and about one other couple. And that's all we could have in the house. It was a small little house. And so we children were say, told, get upstairs and stay upstairs. Don't come down. We come down <laughs> and so Portia sang and my mother played. And one of the songs Portia sang was so powerful with her contralto voice that I felt that the house was shaking. It wasn't. It was just my imagination. Sure. But it was just... So big and sonorous and powerful. Wow. What a great story. So Wolfville, Nova Scotia. Nova Scotia is a small province in Canada. Wolfville is a very small <laughs> town, right? Now we have your ancestors who've come. They're black and there's black people in Nova Scotia, but very few. Yeah. And your home was kind of out of the way, if you will, uh, of the main town. I, I talk about this of myself. You know, I was the the black kid of the neighborhood, me and my brother, right? But you're kind of the black family on the hill or at the farm. What was that like for your family and for you growing up when you were younger in regards to being different than the rest? And, and how did that impact your life on a daily basis? Wolfville was a university town. And yet Wolfville, when I was born, was a town of about 2,000 people. We were the only black family in the entire town. There was only one school, so therefore the students of the university professors, the doctors, the lawyers, and the other professionals of town went to the same school that we went to. And so we could be sitting next to the daughter or the son of the professor of physics or something for all that matter. But sure. we were the only people of color, and we were distinguished by our color, and we were called names that... At home, I'm sure their parents said, don't use that N-word. And so we were called piccaninnies, <laughs> <laughs> above all things. But we managed. We had good stories and bad stories. We had a very happy home life where we all worked very, very hard. We were almost self-sufficient because we had a, a small farm. We had a cow. 
we had pigs, we had hens, we had uh, a, a huge vegetable garden and sold vegetables to the university and uh, would sell strawberries on the street and so on. My mother made her own butter and made all the clothing for the children. So in one sense, we were self-sufficient, but we always all had jobs and brought in money from other sources. So in school, we did pretty well. My sister Jeannie was unnatural and she had no difficulty normally just making A's wherever she went. And I remember when, when it came time for grade 11, we all said, well, she's, always, she's led her class all the way through, uh, so she'll get the gold medal. When it came time to give out the prizes, they said, and now that the prize for second best, the silver medal goes to Jeannie Oliver. And so she got that. And we said, well, what happened? So, so a white boy from a very well-established family whose family thought it would be good if their son got the gold, talked to the principal of the school and some others, and behold, he got the gold medal. They said, this will look good on his CV. And, but what they didn't know is that that year later on, uh, we had to write provincial exams in grade 11, and every student in the entire province in grade 11 had to write these exams. And there was no picture, no name, no face. You were just a number. And my sister Jeannie led the entire province with her marks. And wow. so, and uh, look, I had similar experiences. I applied for a Rhodes Scholarship at the request of some people. I put my name in and I was asked to go in for an interview. And to make a long, long story short, uh, they asked me questions about Immanuel Kant and some other great philosophers from Europe. And I could answer the questions very easily because I was working on my, my master's in existentialism. After we finished my interview, the chairman of the committee, the committee was comprised of the most senior people in the province, like the Chief Justice of Nova Scotia and uh, other very senior people. Uh, he said, before you came in, we had a private meeting. This, our committee did. And I was asked to ask you this final question before you leave. And the question is this, how would you feel uh, how do you think Nova Scotians would feel if they were represented at Oxford in England by a black man like you, a Negro boy like you, they said. And I said, look, uh, I'm here with a 92 average. I'm going to work hard over there. I'm going to get good marks and study hard. And then I'm going to come back to Nova Scotia and try to make a contribution here. And, uh, and I, plus I said some other things, but that was the essence. Sure, sure. But that question was very much like my sister Jeannie's question, you see. Of course, it's an experience that many people, I was going to say to you, Senator, that there was just a story in the news uh, earlier this week or on the weekend that I read in the United States. It was a, a black woman who 30 years later was finally uh, recognized as the valedictorian of her class <laughs> because she, she had not been awarded it, even though she had the, their criteria was the highest mark in the school. And now they had finally given it to her 30 years later. <laughs> Amazing. What happened with the Rhodes Scholarship? Oh, I didn't get it. Mm -hmm. And they, they wrote me a letter and said I should apply the next year because I was a strong candidate. I did not apply. You know, I'm sure many of our listeners will recognize that uh, that disadvantage where uh, race comes into play. It's not based on merit 
Uh, and I'm sure there's all other people who may have merited it, but I'm sure they weren't asked that question. Um, yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. Well, there's something I read in your book that, that really struck me, Senator. You're talking about your family and, and you talked about you felt a duty bound to honor your great grandparents who had fled slavery in the U.S., which you just mentioned. Uh, and you mentioned about, you know, the family surrounded by music and intellectuals and, and just all these you know, work hard attitude, be humble, uh, your spirituality. How did you carry those fundamental values with you forward? And how important were they to you in, in the success that you achieved in life? Oh, they were extremely important. They were the backbone of what I did. And they're still with me. I'm still trying to find ways, even though I'm not quite well, uh, of, give, of giving back to the community and my community and the broader community. And so it's still here. It's still with me. And uh, I, I never lost it. I mean, reading your book, I just, especially coming from my dysfunctional family, you know, as much as there was adversity because of racial barriers and challenges, your family just seems like uh, just achievers, you know, hard workers and, and just like perseverance, resilience, a desire to achieve and just continue to move forward. And is that just something from your family or is it just the need that that's what a lot of black families and people of color that have to do to make their way in this world? I think that getting a better education was in the Oliver White DNA because on my grandfather side, white side, they all had that same drive. And on my father's side, the same drive. And my father had a different approach. My father was not aggressive uh, on the Oliver side, but on the white side, they were more aggressive in making sure, sure that they worked hard and they, they got what they worked for and were not afraid to stand up and confront it. My father would have said, look, the Christian thing to do is to turn the other cheek. Mm -hmm. And so I'm a combination of those. Yes, yes. You can imagine. So what does that make me? <laughs> well, you know, we're all the sum of our parts, right? That's right. Last week I interviewed, uh, actually two weeks ago, I interviewed Wes Hall, which you know well. Wes Hall is uh, one of the most prominent business people in Canada. He just happens to be a, a black man. Also the founder of the Black North Initiative, which I know you sit on the board. And we we spoke about the implications of being first. You've had many firsts, right, in terms of your career. And, and one of the things when I remember reading in your book is, and you're a very humble senator because you, you, there's a lot of nuance in your book, but you just go, oh, and then I, I applied to, you know, I went to law school and, and then I applied at this law firm and they let me in. But what you, you fail to, to say out loud is that you're really the first black man at this, to work in this law firm in, Nova, in all of Nova Scotia. So can you share a little bit more about your journey of being first and why that's important for you and why it's, it's important for the community? Each day, I think of new things where I was first because I had forgotten about a lot of them and no, never really made most of them prominent in my mind. But uh, as I've been reading more about black lawyers in Canada, I now realize that I was the first black lawyer in Canada to rise to become a senior partner in a major law firm anywhere in Canada, Toronto, Vancouver, uh, Edmonton, anywhere. 
because of the systemic barriers that existed and still do exist today in law firms. Absolutely. Uh, across Canada, uh, you know, it's very difficult. To, and I became a senior partner in the largest firm in Atlantic Canada. Uh, so and that that was a, first a and a major achievement. And it opened the door for a lot of others. During Black History Month, I gave a, a private lecture to the black students at the law firm where I started. And I said students, plural, and there are several. There. Yes, yes, that's amazing. And, and lawyers and uh, article students and, and so on. So it, th that's one of the things that being first can do, open those doors. And I've opened the doors for blacks in a number of areas. And for instance, you know, we have the, the Senator Don Oliver scholarship. And I just got noticed yesterday, we've given out more than uh, $150,000 helping uh, blacks uh, at at Dalhousie University with that. Plus, there are other things that uh, we've uh, established to help blacks. That's amazing. So the interesting part of that, you being the first, but I'm also interested in the flip side, right? There's a white establishment, lawyers, partners of a law firm who are, I'm presuming, white. And what is it about them that made that room for you or you made the space for yourself but they had to actually allow it to happen because we're still talking about this today right there was a huge investigative report in the globe and mail last year about the 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 lack of representation of black lawyers in toronto for example it's minuscule not to even mention partnerships so what is it about the lawyers that hired you at this law firm made the space for you what was different about them than previous generations or other law firms? I don't know if they expected me to succeed or not. Before I joined, uh, they said, we want to have a private chat with you. And in that private chat, uh, they said, look, um, you're joining with four other people and their parents are business people or they're known and they're going to be capable of bringing in new work to this firm. Your father was a janitor, had no education, and uh, you don't have those connections, and you are going to have difficulty bringing business to the firm. And we want you to know that you likely, therefore, will not succeed as quickly as the others. I mean, I was told that right up front. And so uh, the next year, I brought in uh, a university from Montreal, Sir George Williams University, as a client. They phoned, they said they wanted to retain me. And the university paid my fees as a lawyer to uh, go up to Montreal and help them with a the dispute with black students who were having difficulty with a professor who was marking them down. To, Surprise. To, yeah. <laughs> so to bring in a university uh, from another province as your client proved to me that I could bring in business. One of the largest law firms in North America was my client for 17 years uh, where I did civil litigation. And I had oil companies as my clients, you know, Petro Canada. So, and I did all their litigation. And one time, one of my clients, uh, like I was only licensed to practice in one province. And uh, so they said, we have a big case in another province and we want you to do it. And I said, well, I'm not licensed for there. They said, well, we we're going to talk to the province and see what it takes to get you licensed to do this case because we want you to try it. 
So we, we, I got a special leave and a special license to do that one case, went over, did the case, won the case, and the client was happy. You proved them wrong that you, you weren't going to succeed because you succeeded, and you proved them right for making space for you. So it's a great story. You're, you're doing a lot of community work as well. You're trying to reform Parliament. So we're going to talk about that when we return with Senator Don Oliver. Hey everyone, if you've listened to season one of Black and White, you know that my amazing guests and I have often discussed the wealth gap issue that persists between the BIPOC and non-BIPOC communities. Disadvantage of opportunity caused in part by wealth inequalities is something I know firsthand as a black man who started out in life from challenging circumstances. More than 10 years ago, I turned to Andrew Shepard and his team at Flatiron Wealth Management to help me set a course for a better financial future for my family by setting tangible financial goals and putting in place informed investment strategies. At that time, Andrew and his team reviewed my needs, which included long-term planning for the eventual retirement I envisioned, and making sure we had a safety net in place in case things went wrong along the way. Most importantly, Andrew heard me when I told him that priority number one was to secure a better future for my kids, one which would see them have as many opportunities as possible. Through a collaborative process, the Flatiron team recommended a strategy for my kids, which included a savings plan, partly anchored in a governmental educational savings program, combined with a participatory insurance product that would allow my kids to have millions of dollars of life insurance coverage paid for in 20 years at the lowest cost possible. Surprising to me, this plan would also enable my kids to borrow from the insurance policy to pay for college, to put a down payment on a house, or to invest in a business. Key foundational pillars to building generational wealth. It's truly been an amazing 10 years with Flatiron. I've seen the direct benefit of their financial management services, positive forward momentum realized year after year. If you're in need of solid financial management advisory services, give Andrew and his team at Flatiron a call. You'll be happy you did. Welcome back to Black and White with my amazing guest, Senator Don Oliver. A very, very successful legal career, um, you were uh, instrumental in the black community in terms of advancement and representation and support and raising money. You were an advisor to many. And then you get the tap on the shoulder uh, from Canadian Prime Minister Brian Mulroney, and you get a call saying he wants to appoint you to the Senate. Can you tell us about that moment, what that meant to you, and I know we just talked about your family and where they came from as former slaves, and now you're going to be appointed to one of the highest office in the land. Well, I was in Toronto at the time, and, and I got a phone call, and, and uh, someone said, where have you been? The prime minister's been looking for you. Stay there, and in 15 <laughs> minutes, the same phone is going to ring again, and it'll be the prime minister. So I asked my guests that I had in the boardroom to leave. Well, I took a private talk call and they did. And the phone rang and I heard this deep voice. Hello, Don, this is Brian. And, and it was the prime minister. <laughs> and I started to shake. And uh, then he said, look, uh, uh, first of all, this is interesting. He said, how's your wife? How's your daughter? Is your daughter still doing well in school? And so on. And asked a lot of very private questions to make sure that he had the right person. 
<laughs> yeah. You know, you were uh, quite involved in the Conservative Party of Canada, locally, regionally, nationally. So you were a known entity. Yeah, but in Canadian history, one prime minister picked up the phone and said, hi, George. Uh, uh, look, I'm, I'm going to appoint you to the Senate. It was the wrong George. So, so anyway, so they always make sure that they've got the right person. That's hilarious. So anyway, he did. And then he said, look, you, you have uh, done an awful lot in Nova Scotia. You've done a lot for Canadians. You've done a lot for the party. And I don't know anyone who's even said thank you to you yet. You haven't been paid for any of the things you've done for 25 years for the party and uh, you, as a lawyer. And it's always been a volunteer. You've done on all kinds of other pro bono work. So today I want, on behalf of all those things, to say thank you. And I'm going to appoint you to the Senate of Canada. And my heart just pounded. I didn't know what to say. I didn't know what to do. And, uh, and the first few words did not come out. And I tried to say thank you, and they should, they just wouldn't come out. And finally, they did. I said, said sir, thank you very much. I, I don't know how to thank you. And I just hope I can live up to the trust that you've now placed in me. And uh, so it was just a wonderful experience. For your family, I mean, uh, you know, you talked about your your relatives who accomplished in, in other fields. But really, you know, this is one of the highest offices one can hold in Canada. And what does it mean for your family? And what did you think it meant for black people in Canada? Well, I was, as you said in the introduction, I was the first black man in Canadian history to ever be summoned to the Senate. And uh, that in itself was a major first and a major event for me and for my family. And in my maiden speech, I made it very, very clear to everyone that I would not forget who I was and what I was, and that I was a, a black person who had an obligation to look out for other black, black people. And now that I had the power of a senator, I was going to use those powers for good, uh, which I tried to do for the next 22 years. Amazing, amazing. So maybe share with us the Senate in Canada, and there's only one other black person there. And of course, you see what's going on there, and you see that there's not a lot of representation, you see that there's still some biases and prejudice in the functioning of Parliament, uh, obviously across Canada. So tell, maybe you can share with us some of the initial experiences and that you had there, and also what you, you pushed to make happen. Well, for, first, in the Senate, I noticed that there were very few people of color anywhere. So I, I went to the clerk who's like the CEO or the head of the Senate and said, I just don't see any people who look like me, even in the administration, even sweeping the floors. Where are they? And how many have been hired in the last five years? And the answer was in the five years before I went, there was not one person of color who had been hired to work in the Senate of Canada in the administration. Wow. And I said, this has to change. So then I looked at the House of Commons and then I looked at the Library of Parliament because the Parliament of Canada is made up of the House of Commons, the Senate and the Queen, represented by the Governor General. And so I looked at the House of Commons and it was the same. So I had called a meeting of the head of the library, the head of the House of Commons and the head of the Senate. And the three of them and myself met and I said, I am shocked at the representation of black people in the houses of parliament. 
and the Houses of Parliament should represent the mosaic of Canada, and it doesn't. What are we going to do about it? And I said, we have to start with some facts, some data, and statistics. So they started keeping statistics as a result of that meeting, and uh, statistics don't lie. And when you have to report on of those course. statistics every year, changes started to take place. So that was one of the big changes I was able to make early on. And did you find that they were open to it? Because obviously they did it, or they reluctantly went along, or it was a bit of both? It was, uh, it was a bit of both. There, there was racism throughout parliamentary institutions, very ingrained, deep systemic racism. And it's hard to peel that back. And so it, it could only be done slowly. And there was a bit of reluctance at the beginning. How am I going to do this? What are others going to say? You know. Yeah, of course, of course. And just to remind everyone, like, this is not like 1950. I have this conversation with, I tell, with people all the time. I said, you know, this is not like, this is late 80s and then to the 90s. Yeah. You know, for younger people, this might seem a long time ago, but it's not that long ago. Yeah. Right? So, so anyways, you managed to, to, to put a marker there and get things to change. And uh, then you, you actually kept pushing. And what did that lead to? I, I had a number of inquiries in the Senate about why there was so much discrimination. And I got other senators speaking to this debate. And that raised the awareness among senators. And then we started speaking outside. And uh, then um, I would be invited by say the CEOs of banks to have lunch and dinner, and I would talk to them about the corporate culture. So not only did I make changes with the administrative side of the public sector, but I also so did a substantial work with the corporate sector. And one time I was in a bank in, in Toronto for luncheon, and I said to the banker as I walked into his office, I said, I didn't see many women and I did not see many people of color in your executive ranks as I, I walked through the senior level of the bank. And he said, oh, no, we just hire the best. If, if they were good, they'd be here. <laughs> yeah. I said, well, uh, I, I didn't see e even one. And he raised his voice a bit and finally said, look, if you're suggesting that we're prejudiced here or that we discriminate against anybody, what's your proof? You're a lawyer. What's your proof? And I had none. I had no statistics, no data. And so I said, I'm going to get them. And so I then said, who can I do? What group can I get and find to do the largest study ever done in Canada on barriers to the advancement of people of color in both the public and the private sectors? And I, I decided upon the conference board, I went to them, had several meetings with them, said, I want you to do this study. This is important for Canada. And they said, okay, we agree, we will do your study, but it's going to cost you $500,000. So I said, okay, so I went out and I raised $500,000. So you may say, how can a little Negro boy from a small town in Nova Scotia raise that kind of money that fast? Well, I had good connections with banks and I got 50000 from one bank and then I got 50000 from another. With that 100000 I, I soon hit the five hundred. gave them the money. We did the study. And the study basically said this, there is racism in Canada, we can prove it now in both the public and the private sectors, and uh, what we really need to do is to teach diversity and the business case for diversity. And that's what I spent the rest of my, my Senate career promoting, the business case for diversity, both within and outside of Canada. 
Yeah, exactly. And I'm curious, did you go back to that banker with the data? <laughs> His bank was one of the banks that gave money for the to help fund the report as well. Although, interestingly enough, one bank gave me 50000 That particular bank gave me 10000 So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, they contributed. So, And, and the, the more important thing is you were able to move forward with the study and to get the data. As we know, the benchmarking is so important when we look at systemic racism. And that we're, you know, here all these years later, we're still talking about it. All Canadians and Americans would know is Black History Month, which we now celebrate in February. Uh, but you had a big hand in making that actually a reality here in Canada uh, all those years ago. Tell us about how that came about. Well, as you know, in Canada, we have the two branches of government, the House of Commons and the Senate. And no law can become a law until it passes through the Senate. And uh, uh, there had been a motion in the House of Commons, and uh, it was just that, a motion in the House of Commons. I wanted it to be nationwide, and I wanted Canada to recognize Black History Month. So I passed a resolution unanimously in the Senate in 2008. And uh, that, uh, that resolution that passed unanimously uh, made Canada uh, recognize February as Black History Month and the month that we celebrate the great achievements of Black people not just today, but uh, earlier days. Through history, and, uh, of course. So it's become a great, great event. And I, I, that, that was one of the great achievements that I'm, that I'm proud well, of. I, and of course, we're all benefiting from that. I launched my book during Black History Month. And you could see the different spotlight and focus that it places on people of color, black people who have uh, historically accomplished and those that are just getting going. We talked about your study and representation. And as mentioned, that you sit on the board of the Black North Initiative, which was created by Wes Hall. And for those who aren't aware, the Black North Initiative was created uh, uh, in 2020, post the murder of George Floyd. And really, Wes Hall rallied the business community to say, we need to change things in terms of representation and diversity in the corporate ranks. And instead of just saying, what are we going to do? Uh, he asked these corporations to make a pledge to actually benchmark numbers and actually put real numbers on the board of what change would look like. So tell me how you got involved in that and why do you think this is so critically important? Well, I, I have been writing op-eds and articles all my life for newspapers and I had done an op-ed for the uh, Globe and Mail and I, I referred to West Hall in it, but I had been writing about uh, how black people in Canada had to find a way of speaking with one voice and speaking out against things like uh, George Floyd, because uh, having 15 or 30 different voices speaking out and saying different things didn't help at all. Wes Hall had written an op-ed piece in the Globe and Mail as well. So we got on the phone, talked about it. And from there, we said, look, let's work together. So he asked me to go on his board and uh, to do some other things. And so we've been working together ever since then. Uh, you know. Well, he's doing great work. And we, like I said, we had a conversation a couple of weeks on this podcast with Wes Hall. And he's really pushing the envelope, especially in the corporate world, leading, representing and modeling right to the business community and to black people who are looking to follow in his steps. So I think it's a great initiative. I wanted to, uh, you talked about community and I know 
Last time we talked, you talked about the importance of doing the work in the communities where you live at the community level, where change can really happen on the ground. Can you give us an example? I think we were talking last time about a community center that you had really spearheaded the fundraising and, and, and why community centers and, and making change in the community is so important. I had a half brother who was a minister, a Baptist minister, but as part of his Baptist ministry, he had a social outreach. And uh, there were 50 black communities in the province of Nova Scotia at the time, very small communities scattered all over the place. And so he found a way by establishing the NSAACP in Nova Scotia uh, and putting branches in each of these little communities as a way of reaching out to them and being able to do social development with them. He was 30 years older than I was, and so we would talk and I would go to his church with my family, and we would talk and talk even more. He, we talked a lot about Africa, for example. And then he said, look, I've, I, I've had a, a desire for some time to have some kind of a center that our youth can look up to, because our youth don't knew, know who their heroes are. Mm -hmm. They don't to help Nova Scotia to help build Canada. Because, of course, all this stuff is not in the history books, right? And it's not in history books. So he said, let's build a cultural center and we will save some artifacts. We'll have books. We'll have a meeting place uh, where youth can look up to those who broke down barriers and made it easier for them today. He said, let's do it. So he had the dream. We got an architect and then we needed some money. So I, I raised several hundred thousand dollars to get the center going. And it's up and running and it's now representing the communities of Nova Scotia, all 50 communities can look to that cultural center as the voice and as the place where they can go uh, and as a place of doing business, getting to get together, promoting the culture, and most of all, bringing our youth in off the street and uh, giving them training in uh, and high technology and computers and in other things, giving them a better chance or even helping them with, with tutors so they can go to university. Uh, amazing. And I, I trust there's a, there has to be a, a nice exhibit about Senator Don Oliver there. <laughs> well, <laughs> I, would expect, I would expect that because it's important because you're definitely one of the people in Canada that deserves that uh, recognition. I just want, uh, there's a couple fun stories that we talked about last year. Uh, one is, is about you meeting President Barack Obama, the first black president of the United States. And it actually, in, in a visit to the White House that you had, but can you tell us a little bit about that experience of meeting Barack Obama? Prime Minister of Canada later on was Stephen Harper. And he said to me, Donnie, I'm aware of all the work you've done in Canada uh, uh, working in black communities and trying to break down barriers and trying to make Canada a more tolerant place. And he said, I've told Obama about it. And he said, I'd like the two of you to meet. And I have to go down for a pre-G20 uh, meeting with him. And I want you to come down and, I, and I've arranged for you to meet. So we flew down and we went to the Oval Office uh, in, in, in the White House uh, and uh, Hillary Clinton was there and a few other people for the meeting. It was a small meeting. And after they did their business that I sat through and listened to, uh, uh, which was fascinating, I, I, I was told, look, they're going to come in with cameras and so on. So to take pictures of the two of us, Obama and 
uh, Harper, so the rest of you step, step away because you could be hit by the cameras. So, so the rest of us stepped away, and I stepped quite close to a very important <laughs> table that I didn't know of. One of the guards came running over, get away from that table. <laughs> and anyway, after, after the media left, I heard a voice say, Senator, could you come over? And my heart started to pound because it was uh, Obama, and we were near a window, so I walked over. And he said, look, I've heard a lot from your prime minister about the work you've done, and I wanted to commend you on it. It's, it's very, very, very commendable. And I said, and you too, sir, you, you've done a lot of work, work in communities as well. And I said, look, as we stand by this window, I would like to tell you that not far from here, my great-grandfather uh, was a slave uh, in, uh, in Virginia. And my grandfather left, came to Canada, and uh, got a degree in a university in 1903. And uh, I said he went on to do great things for Canada. And he said, that's a great story. He said, I went on to become uh, the, the first black man, man senator in Canada. And he said, and I'm the first black president of the United States. Why don't we call the camera over and have a picture to celebrate that those two firsts? So he brought the camera over and a picture was taken of the two first, President Obama and Senator Don Oliver. And I still have the photo and it was just wonderful. Then he said to me, how would you like to have your picture taken standing between the President of the United States and the Prime Minister of Canada? And I was blushing and shaking <laughs> and, and I had my picture taken there with them as well. But it was just wonderful being in the Oval Office, meeting the President, having a private chat with the President. And and, uh, uh, and 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 being able to uh, uh, just say, pinch myself and say it's really happening. Wow. You know, from your little town in Nova Scotia and, and really a tribute to your ancestors who paved the way for the great person that you became. And, and uh, so, you know, what a wonderful story. Uh, and thank you for sharing. Uh, be before we, we wrap up today, you're someone that's that never stops, really. You, you farming, you've got multiple ventures. But one of the things that I found interesting, and you know, we have something in common, the love of food, but you actually went to culinary school, uh, and then actually went to Tuscany, I believe to to learn how to cook. What attracted you? Why? Where did that love of food and, and wine come from? And, and I'm curious as to what your signature well, is. Well, um, started when I was very young. My two sisters, who were older than me, uh, took home economics in university. And in those days, home economics was uh, learning how to cook and then textiles and so on. So my sisters would come home and talk about cooking. My mother would say, what did you do in school today, girls? And they would practice their dishes on us. One day they were talking about fatty acids and amino acids, and I was listening and listening. And uh, they said, Donnie, this is girl talk. <laughs> and I said, I still want to learn about cooking. So I started buying books on cooking. I started reading everything I could get my hands on about cooking. And later on, I hired a, a private tutor on cooking. And then I took cooking courses in a cooking school in Nova Scotia. And then I, then I decided I wanted to get bigger. So I went to London, England, and I took the most advanced course at the Cordon Bleu in London. After that, I went to, uh, to Italy. And that was really against my sisters saying, sisters, you said men can cook too, sisters. So. Of course. And so anyway, I, I had fun with that. I used my cooking to help carry out my social purposes, that is to do things in the community. So people would pay large dollars to have a meal cooked by me. 
and uh, you know, like a thousand dollars a plate they would pay if I cook a meal. And so I raised money for autism. I raised money for uh, Neptune Theater. I raised money for many black causes. But by putting on meals that I would pay for myself, I'd pay for the food and wine, do the cooking, invite the people, and they would pay, and I would give the money to charity. Great stuff. Amazing. Do you have a signature dish, Senator? Pheasant was my favorite. And I saw some, one of the biggest meals I ever did was pheasant, and I love pheasant. Wow, that's like that. That's not traditional. That's amazing. <laughs> well, oh, I, I, I'm sure people have enjoyed it, and and uh, you know, it's a delicious note to end uh, our conversation today. Thank you very much, Senator Oliver, for your time. Uh, the amazing conversation. Um, I want to encourage everyone to pick up Senator Oliver's book, A Matter of Equality. It's available online in bookstores, local bookstores. Please support your local bookstores. Uh, an amazing Canadian leader, activist, transformative figure in Canadian history. Uh, blessings to you, sir. It's been a, a real honor. and Thank you. Well, thank you very much for having me. Thanks for listening to Black and White. If you've enjoyed today's conversation, please be sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app. Black and White is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Special thanks to engineer Ian Douglas, my producer and sound designer Noah Fouts, and executive producers Gerardo Orlando and David Allen Moss. A reminder that my book, Black and White, an intimate multicultural perspective on white advantage and the path to change, is now available online and in bookstores across the U.S. and Canada. I'm Stephen Dorsey, reminding all of us that we can all be better, do better, so that eventually we can all live better together. A news story gets shared by a friend on social media, or you catch a tweet that really makes your blood boil. But how do you separate fact from fiction? That's the premise behind Disinformation, a 10-part series from Evergreen Podcasts and Emergent Risk International coming this fall. Tune in to Disinformation wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, don't believe everything you read.